Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is David Phillips. David is an associate research professor of economics at the University of Notre Dame. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to talk about your research on how emergency financial assistance affects criminal behavior. But before we dive into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Sure. So my focus is largely on poverty and anti-poverty programs in the United States. So I kind of backed into being interested in crime in the U.S. as somebody interested in poverty. So originally, a while back, I was working on my dissertation work at a nonprofit employment agency in Washington, D.C. And I was spending some time around there looking at issues related to employment. And they're helping people find jobs in the middle of the Great Recession. And it's, you know, it dawns on you at some point that every other person who walks in the door has a criminal record that affects their job search. You think, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I should actually pay more attention to the criminal justice system. And this was right around the same time that I think a lot of people were like, people were starting to throw around the term mass incarceration and people were reading the new Jim Crow and this sort of thing was happening. And I think in economics, there was this broader appreciation that, oh, maybe we should be thinking about crime and criminal justice as, as a first order thing when we talk about poverty in the US. Um, and so that, that sort of planted a seed in, in my mind. And then where this particular project then came up is, so I worked for the Lab for Economic Opportunities, or LEO, at the University of Notre Dame. And LEO had this ongoing partnership with folks doing emergency financial assistance in, in the city of Chicago. And that's focused, you know, a lot of the research that they've been doing so far have been focused largely around homelessness. And we started thinking about to what extent there might be a link between these types of social assistance programs and crime outcomes, whether we could link into arrest data and this sort of thing as an outcome. And this particular project was born. And I think it really does come out of that sort of recognition that when you're thinking about poverty and anti-poverty programs in the United States, a lot of times, if you look at the cost-benefit analysis, like outcomes related to crime are going to dominate, right? If you look at the Perry Preschool Project, like uh, which many of your listeners may be familiar with, an early childhood intervention that's viewed by a lot of people as one of the most sort of cost-effective interventions we can do, right? Most of the benefits come from crime reduction. And so this idea that, hey, we're looking at this homelessness program, this emergency financial assistance program, should we look at not just things like shelter usage and, and so on as outcomes, but hey, we should, we should be paying attention to crime and how this is affecting crime in the city of Chicago and, and whether it has an impact there. So I was able to kind of jump into a project that, that Jim Sullivan and some other people at, at Notre Dame had already begun looking at, at other outcomes and, and join the team uh, as we sort of launched on, on thinking about how this type of assistance might affect crime and criminal behavior. So your paper is titled, Does Emergency Financial Assistance Reduce Crime? And it's co-authored with Carolyn Palmer and Jim Sullivan. So let's start with basics here. What does emergency financial assistance mean in this context? Yeah, so this probably exists for you and for me and for the listeners in their community, right? So most places, if you call 211 or 311, you'll get a call center that can direct you to emergency financial assistance. And the, actually, these places are getting deluged with uh, calls right now because of the COVID situation and lots of people having lost income because this type of assistance really is designed for smoothing over shocks, right? So it's designed for a situation where you've got somebody who's in a stable situation, they've got a job or they've got uh, income from public benefits, they have a stable place to live. They, you know, they're, they're in a stable situation and then something happens. They lose a job, their hours get cut back, their public benefits get reduced for one reason or another unexpectedly. And it's a temporary thing, right? I expect that I'm going to be recalled to my job or I expect that I'm, my hours are going to go back up or that my public benefits are going to get restored after this temporary sanction. And then this emergency financial assistance jumps in in that kind of situation to provide temporary assistance. Sometimes it's, it's literally just providing somebody with cash. That's happening more often right now in the current COVID situation. In the context in, in Chicago, it's going to be most of the time basically rent paid to the landlord, that this person owes back rent to their landlord and they're, they're going to pay temporarily this person's rent until their income gets back to the place where it's sort of its permanent level. So as economists, how might we expect such assistance to affect criminal behavior? What are the potential mechanisms here? I think there's a few for this one. Some of them are more sort of traditional uh, economics of crime mechanisms, um, and some of them might be a little bit new. So right, I think that the standard one that might come to the mind uh, of a lot of folks who think of econ of crime would be like a sort of Becker opportunity cost type of world, right? Where this is essentially, right, somebody's faced an income shock and we're going to compensate for that. And so we're, we're basically just providing income to some person. 
And that's going to affect the, the trade-offs that this person makes between engaging in criminal behavior that might be income generating, theft or what have you, versus either leisure or some market behavior. And in particular, right, if you think leisure is a normal good, people are, are work less when they have, when their sort of income drops on the sky from them. You might ha- expect that to happen for crime too, right? If I'm committing crime in order to raise income, uh, and all of a sudden now I have this income, I don't need to commit the crime quite as much anymore. And so you might expect things like property crime to go down when somebody has some income dropped on them because they don't need to do the crime anymore. So that's, so one possibility is that kind of sort of Becker-ish rational opportunity cost type of story. There are a couple other stories that, that are also out there, right? You can tell a behavioral economic story. You know, this is sort of, you could think of the type of idea that like Sendel Molinathan, I think, is, has ported this into economics. A lot of thinking about situations of scarcity and how that affects how people's cognition and how they make decisions, how it makes them focus on the present and have difficulty sort of making optimal trade-offs between the situation I'm in right now and something that might be way off in the future. And desisting from violent crime might be exactly the kind of thing that's kind of hard to do when you're fo- very focused on the present and this current situation and you're sort of caught up in that moment and the consequences of that violence are down the road um, and a little bit less immediate, right? It's a, if you think of violent crime as rather, rather than being a rational decision as being sort of a, somebody making an action that's inconsistent with what they would like, their long-term self would like to do, then providing income and smoothing out that situation of scarcity could help, right? You know, somebody's lost their job, you fill in that gap by providing enough income for their, them to pay their rent for the month. That might provide them the space to be able to sort of think through what they really want to do, avoid violent situations with family or housemates or neighbors or what have you, and sort of reduce some crime by just giving the person some more space. The third potential mechanism that I think is useful for this particular paper, but also more generally when thinking about income, is to think actually about housing. This paper is going to have some connection to homelessness. And, and housing stability in particular, because the, the financial assistance is going to be used mostly for paying rent. But that's actually also true for income in general, right? Like the, the biggest expenditure for most households is their housing, particularly for low-income households. And so like housing itself shapes the environment in which somebody might take different actions about, about criminal behavior, right? It shapes who I live with. It shapes how crowded that situation is. There's a lot of good examples. For instance, people might be familiar with uh, Matt Desmond's book, Evicted, from a few years ago. But there's lots of stories from that book about people moving into really suboptimal housing situations, moving in with unstable roommates or, or very crowded housing or what have you because of lack of income leads to poor housing. And then that just like physical environment creates interpersonal reactions that might lead to crime or violence, or, or what have you. And so I think we, we're sort of imagining that there, there may be this sort of classic Becker mechanism, there may be this sort of behavioral scarcity mindset type of mechanism, and then there also might be sort of housing-specific things that are going to matter in, in, in this context and more generally for situations where you've got low-income folks with widely varying income over time. All right. So before you all wrote this paper, what did we know about the effects of financial assistance on crime in practice? What what research was out there? So, there, I mean, there's a huge amount of research on employment and crime, right? And, and that's a very broad literature that's out there. And I think we'd make the argument in this paper that that's, that is really important and really interesting, but it's a little bit different than understanding how income and income shocks and smoothing out those income shocks affects people's criminal behavior, right? Because a, a job is, is income, but it's a bunch of other things too. It's, it's, it's time use, right? It, it takes me from maybe sitting on the couch to, and having nothing to do to, to being in a job, right? It also had, there's some like identity elements of, of being employed. So I think employment matters and, and it could matter for income, but we'd want to know a little bit more specifically about income and, and how people respond to shocks. Similarly, like we have, we have some literature on how people uh, in criminal behavior and crime responds to shocks in general, right? So the, there's the one of my favorites, the old um, Card and Dahl uh, paper on the National Football League and how in, in a particular city when, when the home team loses unexpectedly, that you see an increase in domestic violence, which is one of these like terrible aha papers, at least for me, of like, oh, wow, yeah, that's, that, yeah, that's going on around me all the time that when we experience situations of shock, that can, lead to, that can lead to violence. Specifically on income, I think the closest set of papers, though, really is about public benefits. Um, there's this series of papers about public benefit 
cycles through the month. The original one that I know of is a paper by Fritz Foley from a few years ago, maybe about a decade ago now. That was the first, I think, to document this, that there's a lot of things that follow this sort of like food stamp cycle where people get their benefits at one point in the month and, and then uh, spending and a bunch of other things sort of happen concentrated around that point. Supermarkets are booming around that time in a lot of low-income neighborhoods because people just got their benefits renewed. Foley's paper is one of the first to identify, hey, crime actually follows this pattern too. That you see when people's benefits are starting to run out at the end of their benefit month, that they start committing more crime. And that, that tells you a couple of things, right? It tells you, one, that people are credit constrained in some way, or they're constrained in some way that's not allowing them to sort of smooth out their income, that people's income is volatile enough that when they get the public benefit matters. And two, that it also matters for crime, right? That, that like how much criminal behavior people engage in depends on what resources are available to them at that point in time. And so I think that paper is one that's really informative about sort of laying the groundwork for saying like, yeah, it's like when the timing and the volatility of people's income, um, the, and the, even in an expected way, right? Something that people know about ahead of time, it's, it causes problems for people's ability to cope with that. And then this is from, from criminal behavior. I think you had um, Jillian Carr on the show. So people might be familiar from a couple of podcasts ago of, uh, with, with her paper looking at trying to, to get rid of that cycle, basically. And so I think her paper, that, that one's really sort of contemporaneous with our paper. She was presenting that around the same time that we were presenting the paper I'm talking about. But I think it gets at a, a similar point, right, of, of hers, for those who aren't familiar, right, is looking at this situation in Indiana, Illinois, where they went from providing food stamp benefits all on the same day to spreading it out throughout the month so that different people got their benefits on different days. And you see a benefit of that, of sort of, disrupting this like monthly cycle of, uh, of crime mm-hmm. that's caused by people's lack of resources at particular times of the month. So I think that's where we're sort of jumping in is, is in a same similar space to where Jillian and Annalisa were jumping in of saying like, okay, we have this evidence that the resources that people have available to them could affect crime. Now, what happens when we actually respond to that? What if we try to actually smooth that thing out, we try to smooth income out? How is that going to affect uh, the crime that we see happening in the world around us? So as you said, these emergency financial assistance programs exist in cities across the country. So why don't we know more than we do about what the impacts of these kinds of programs are? What are the research hurdles that you had to overcome in order to measure the causal effects of this kind of program on criminal behavior? I mean, some of it's just a data issue, right? So some of it is because you really need to observe a set of people who have experienced these shocks. And that's kind of hard, actually, right? To screen on people who have lost a job or had their benefits cut, right? So that's sort of a data barrier to begin with is let's identify people who've had a shock. And then let's also see a group of people then who are receiving some intervention, right? And so you might not be able to to pair those together, right? That like you might be able to go to something like unemployment insurance benefits and and, and see somebody that, that experienced a shock, but then to match that up with, oh, here's a person who got some response to that situation, that, that they received some assistance. Matching that up is kind of hard. And then you need to link those two pieces of information, right? This person had a shock and they received some assistance up to an outcome on crime, which probably then resides with a third different agency. And, and so there's part of it just a data linking difficulty of like connecting all of those pieces of information is challenging. And so for us, right, we had to sort of overcome that by linking data from a nonprofit organization that runs homelessness services to, uh, to police department records, right, to be able to overcome that. And that's, that's kind of a challenging thing to do. So I think one challenge that we had to overcome was, yeah, just actually getting all of the data together in one place. I think there's also like an identification issue, right? So there's a, like, doing cause and effect here is, is particularly hard because you're, we're particularly interested in people who've experienced income shocks, right? We, we want to look at a group of people who the reason that they're getting this assistance is because things just went south. And in a lot of program evaluation situations, we're really worried about the Ashenfelter dip, right? We're worried that people who sign up for a program are signing up for it because they're in a bad situation. So they're going to look like they're doing worse when they sign up for the program. But that's not because of the program, right? It's because there was something else that caused them to sign up. Here, the situation is actually a little bit worse because we're actually directly selecting on the Ashenfelter dip, right? We're we're saying to be eligible to get this assistance, you have to have had something bad happen to you. So forming a comparison group that has experienced that same shock, but not received the assistance is going to be particularly hard uh, to do and particularly important to do to make sure that we don't mistakenly look at the situation and say, wow, these people are doing so terribly that they've got the assistance. It's like, well, that's why they showed up in the first place. Right. And then on top of that, you also have, so these are people that are selected on having experienced a shock, but are also motivated enough 
or knowledgeable enough to know to reach out to this organization, which kind of is an additional layer of like selection that might be a problem here, right? Yeah. So you could, yeah. And that could make it go the other direction, right? So then if you're, you're able to account for the fact that people have experienced these shocks, but not their ability to actually access services or be aware of services, then you could get the other direction, right? Then you could say, wow, these people are doing so well. And in reality, it's just that they had the motivation to deal with it or the connections or the resources to deal with it. And it's those things that matter rather than this assistance. Right. So in this paper, you consider the effects of emergency financial assistance to people who call Chicago's Homelessness Prevention Call Center, which I'll refer to as HPCC because it is shorter. (laughs) So what does the HPCC do and who is eligible to receive assistance from them? Yeah, so they're the they're essentially the call center. So Catholic Charities of Chicago uh, runs this call center, and so they're they're basically on the other end of three one one. You call three one one, you say I'm behind on my rent, I need some help. They forward you to the HPCC, and they've got staff there at the phone bank who are helping to identify whether the people who call are eligible. So most people who call are not eligible actually for the program. They're actually looking for a pretty narrow group of folks in it that who have experienced these sort of temporary shocks. So they screen on four dimensions is the way that they describe it. So one of them is self-sufficiency. So it has to be the case that this person has enough permanent income to cover their rent. If somebody has, is rent is too high relative to their sort of long-term income, what they expect their income to be in the future, they're not going to help them with this assistance. They need something more permanent than this sort of temporary assistance. It has to be the case that the person has had an eligible crisis. So they have to have had some event. So they have to be able to point to, I got laid off. Here's, here's my public benefit cut. It was, my public benefits were at this level and then my SSI check got cut by this much and, and to be able to document that. So it has to be this shock, right? It has to be something happened and it has to be temporary. Beyond that, it does have a connection specific to housing. They also screen on people being imminent risk for homelessness. So think of that as having an eviction notice. So these are people who are currently housed, but who very soon are not going to be housed if this thing doesn't get fixed. And finally, they, they only take people whose situation is solvable. So if somebody ha- owes their landlord six months of back rent and several thousand dollars, and that's more than the cap for any fund for which they're eligible, then they're going to get turned away too. So you get this group of people who have experienced shocks and that shock threatens their housing, but this intervention looks like it could fill the gap. That, that's what they screen on. And how much money are people typically getting? They're usually getting about a month's rent. So this is Chicago approximately a, a decade ago. So think, so I think the average for our sample is like $800 a month, which I, to, to some folks is, is going to sound like absurdly small if you're living in like Seattle or <laughs> something like this, but that's about what it would, and it, that would be a little bit low for now in Chicago too, but um, it's about one month's rent. And, and the, the actual amounts for these programs varies a lot across the country, but the idea of filling in one month's rent is very common. So you might have a program in Seattle that pays a couple thousand dollars and one in Chicago that only pays $1,000 because they're trying to, trying to do the same thing in theory, even though the amounts are different. One thing that's, that is important to note is among homelessness and housing programs, this is much cheaper than most other homelessness programs. So that's, that's expensive, right, relative to some other things we might imagine doing that are much lighter touch. But among housing programs, that might, like, compared to like a housing voucher that might permanently pay most of somebody's rent and cost you know, $10,000 a year or something, this is, for a housing intervention, pretty inexpensive. Yeah, that's a great point. And yeah, I mean, as you said, this is in some ways trying to solve a different problem. This is temporary shock to permanent income. But if this works, then it is a really cheap intervention relative to other options. Yeah, I think that's right. Because it's, I mean, the, the trade-off with something like this is, right, you're, you're casting a much broader net, right? Because there's a bunch of people who are going to be able to resolve their, their situation on their own. And it's hard to tell who those people are and only focus on the people at the margin for whom this makes the difference. Right, so it, it's casting this big net. It's not as well targeted as, you know, giving a housing voucher to somebody who's already homeless, but it's less expensive per person that you serve. And so there's this trade-off between poor targeting and inexpensive per person. That it, it, you know, sort of, if you manage that correctly, it, it might be a really cost-effective thing, or it might be a big waste of money if we're just all giving this to people who would be able to figure things out themselves. Yeah. So I mean, just thinking in terms of the eligible population. Who are these people in general? <laughs> like, do you have other kind of descriptive stats at your fingertips about what group winds up being eligible for this program? Yes, I mean, they're quite disadvantaged, right? So the screening on imminent risk of homelessness, right, is going to mean you have a very disadvantaged group of people. So that, that's going to be show up in a bunch of different ways, whether you look at people's pre-existing income levels or ethnicity, where they live in the city of Chicago and so on. Now, they are going to be people who have some attachment to income, right? So they're not going to be people with zero income 
there's going to be a lot of public benefits income, but also a lot of employment, perhaps more than um, other similarly disadvantaged people. For an, for an economics of crime crowd, right, probably one of the unique things about this group is that it's largely female, right? So these are heads of households who are seeking homelessness assistance. Homelessness prevention works not exclusively, but the vast majority of, of people who are receiving homelessness prevention funds across the U.S. are, are going to be female-headed households. Um, and so that's, so when we're looking at crime for them, we're looking at criminal behavior of, of women, which, right, is, is uh, a little bit, you know, like most, as I'm sure your listeners know, right, most crime is committed by men. And so that makes that, that a little bit different group. It's interesting to note, though, that actually if we look at like pre-people's arrests prior to when they show up to the program, even though it's a largely female population, they still are more likely to be arrested than the average person in the city of Chicago. So it's still a group of people who've had a lot of contact with the criminal justice system, even though most of them are women. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so it turns out conveniently for you that it is unpredictable when money will be available for people who call in uh, and this creates a natural experiment. So talk us through this process and how it gives you something akin to random variation in who gets the financial assistance that they need. Yeah, that's right. So they, so the Homelessness Prevention Call Center doesn't flip coins with people, so they're not running a randomized control trial, but the, the process they had in place already sort of approximates one through their existing process, which allows us to evaluate this. So one of the key things that happens, right, is so they're getting calls that are coming in from people calling information and they get fed into this call center. And so there, there are a couple of aspects that are important. One is that the HPCC operators screen people on eligibility first up front. And so they, they do sort of a long intake with folks that gather some information on them, like uh, identifiers that we can use to match the arrest data, like people's names. They also screen on some of those broad eligibility criteria I mentioned before, self-sufficiency, having a crisis, et cetera, and also information about what the need is that the person has. So lots of information about the situation that the person is in is collected for everybody, um, whether or not they end up being eligible, whether or not they end up actually getting funds. And so we see these selection criteria for everybody, and we can narrow down the eligible population from this like much larger haystack of people who call and turn out to not be eligible. Now, once you have that eligible group, right, the ideal from the, the scientific point of view would be then that we flip a coin and, and give assistance if it's heads and don't give assistance if it's tails, and they don't do that. But they do something pretty close to that. What they do for the eligible folks is at any given point in time, the HPCC has a list of different funds that they can refer people to. So they're, they're essentially like this central distribution point where all of these different agencies, some of them government, some of them nonprofit, take all of their clients as referrals from the HBCC. And so because it's this sort of central distribution point, they're sort of then passing people off to all these different, these different agencies. But because there's this large number of agencies and the situation of each of those agencies is fluctuating over time, any given agency happens to have space for somebody varies a lot from day to day. So for instance, some organizations are getting funding from the state and Illinois was going through various cycles of budget crisis during this time. And so you have some of these things shutting on and off. You've got nonprofit organizations that are staff constrained and don't, you know, they've got a certain number of slots each day. So maybe this day I've got five slots, tomorrow I've got 12. And so whenever a given person calls the HPCC and they find out, hey, this person is eligible, they start going through that list of potential places they could refer them to. And sometimes there's a place that's got a spot for them. And sometimes even though they're eligible and they're just as good of a case as anybody else and just as good of a fit for the program, they just don't have space. And it really varies wildly from day to day in an unpredictable way. I think one of the things that early on that I have to give credit to Jim Sullivan, who's co-author on this, identifying this earlier on in their previous paper, even in their like the manual for the people who who run this call center, there's this really interesting set of text where they they talk about like what do you what do you do if somebody when you tell somebody no, they and they ask you what what should I do like when when will a fund be available and they literally tell them tell them I don't know because it varies so much when should I call back well should I call back well that's up to you and if they ask you know what's the best time to call say I don't know there's there's no best time to call like the need's so high we don't have enough for everybody. Which is right, which is like tragic for the operators and for the people in that situation. But from a research point of view, is kind of perfect because it's really unpredictable. People have a hard time knowing if you call on a given day whether you're going to be able to get assistance or not. And so that sort of gives us the purchase to be able to have a treatment group, a comparison group who's quite similar, but doesn't get the assistant get the assistance, but for whom we have the same data. Right. And so, yeah. So just step us through how exactly you're using that variation to then measure the causal effect 
of financial assistance on criminal behavior? Yeah, so we take the whole haystack of callers. We narrow it down to people who are eligible based off of having had a crisis and so on. We also narrow it down to people who are first-time callers because some people do call back multiple times and that in of itself is, is, is quite self-selected. It might get into the sort of motivation concern you mentioned before. We still keep the first call for everybody, but we don't want to examine, treat a, a repeat calls as, as a separate sort of instance. So we limit down to a group of people who are sort of calling for the first time and who are eligible. And we're going to compare people who are referred to funds when, they're call, when they call versus people who are not referred to another agency for funds. And so that would be like a simple difference in means, right? We could compare crime outcomes for both those two groups, just like an RCT, and, and say that that's the treatment effect. It's a little bit more complicated in this context because the, the sort of agencies that they're referring to, some of them have their own eligibility requirements. So agency A might only accept veterans or agency B might only pay back rent, but they won't pay security deposits because that's what some people need, but some agencies won't do that. And so there is, there is sort of conditional random assignment here, right? So there's some need to control for differences between different people who show up with somewhat different situations that are eligible for a larger versus smaller proportion of these other funds. And so, and so we end up doing that as well. So in the end, what we're doing is, is we're running a regression of some crime outcome on an indicator for whether the person gets funding, but then controlling for these factors that affect eligibility for the individual specific funds. But the nice thing is, again, it's a centralized intake. And so we actually observe all of those things. So for each of those agencies, we have the sheet that says, here, here are the things that make you eligible. And we can say, okay, here are these different need requests of rent versus security deposit versus whatever. These are the categories that matter and we can control for those things. Yeah, it is a really cool data set. And I'm sure I'm sure lots of listeners are already thinking about how they'd love to get their hands on this data set. So, so talk about the data that you're using for the project, as well as the outcome measures that you're particularly interested in here. Yeah, so the, the sample is defined and baseline information and all of these like control variables and treatment status, all that is defined from the Homelessness Prevention Call Center data. So yeah, the, the, the sort of richness of that data is one of the things that makes this possible, right? It overcomes this problem of identifying a comparison group, controlling for potentially confounding variables, and being able to link the existence of a shock and what that shock was, because that's in the data, that's part of the eligibility. Did you have a crisis and what kind of crisis? Being able to match the shock to whether the person got assistance. So, so like most of the data problems are resolved just by the call center. And so the, the Lab for Economic Opportunities where I work, Leo has had connections since its founding with Catholic Charities, right? We're at, we're at Notre Dame, Premier Catholic University, Catholic Charities, Premier Catholic Social Service Provider. And so we work with a bunch of different folks at, at a bunch of different contexts, but one of our big partners is, is our different branches of Catholic Charities. And so there's a partnership between Catholic Charities Chicago, which runs the call center, and, and the University of Notre Dame that allowed us to, to share that data. And then the second piece of it then was linking it to crime, right? Because the, the call center has no information on people's um, criminal behavior uh, after the call. And so that was a, the next step that we had to manage. And so there we worked together with folks in the Chicago Police Department and, and Chapin Hall, which has lots of, uh, at the University of Chicago, which has lots of connections in terms of data within the city of Chicago to connect those two data sets so that we would be able to observe whether people who called the call center were arrested at some point before or after the call. Now, arrests aren't a perfect outcome. We can talk about that a little bit if you want, but right, it's different from committing crime. It's just crime that's observed and then leads to an arrest. And you can have both type one and type two errors. You can have people arrested who didn't actually commit a crime. And you can have plenty of people who commit a crime that don't uh, actually get arrested, but it gives us some indication of, of engagement in, in criminal behavior that we can then use as an outcome. All right. Well, so let's talk about the results. What do you find is the effect of receiving emergency financial assistance on subsequent arrests? Sure. So overall, the probability of arrest uh, falls a bit when people get emergency financial assistance relative to when they don't. It is a little bit noisy. So we, we, we sort of intentionally in the paper, don't try to pin too much on like one number for the overall drop in arrests. But it does seem like the in the immediate aftermath of the call that people are less likely to be, be picked up by the Chicago Police Department when they get this type of assistance. And then do those effects vary across different types of crime? Yeah, and that's, that's one of the big things that I think we discovered in this paper that was perhaps a little bit surprising to us was the pattern that showed up here what we ended up seeing is actually a big drop in violent crime, but not property crime. So you see pro violent crime arrests drop by about half. And so right, violent crime arrests aren't, aren't super common in general, and that's true in this group as well. So it's something like 
uh, 2% of our, our sample gets arrested for a violent crime in the year after they call for the people who don't get funds. And that drops to about 1% for people who do get funds. It's a small change in terms of probability, but it's a big change in terms of the prevalence of violent crime. And given how like socially costly violent crime is, that's the, I think in a lot of ways is the headline result of the paper is that you can move something like violent crime in a very noticeable way with this relatively modest assistance. Again, like, you know, 98% of people in the sample aren't going to be arrested for a violent crime anyway, but for that couple of percent that, that we're going to be engaged with the Chicago Police Department on something related to violent crime, right, if you can cut that in half, that's, that's, a, that's a tremendous success. So that, I think that's the big, like, biggest headline result from a cost-benefit and is this emergency financial assistance making a difference point of view. From, a, from an economist's point of view, the other thing that we find that's, that's I think, matters less for cost-benefit, but is sort of intriguing from a thinking about why does crime happen point of view is that we actually see property crime go up. So we see an increase in larceny for going up by about the same amount. So three years later, there's not much difference in sort of overall number of arrests. And it's because the, the initial drop in violent crime is offset by some increase in property crime that, that sort of slowly picks up over time and happens a little bit later. Uh, now, property crime is a lot more common in general. So sort of the change in you know, how much of property crime this is contributing to is, is a little bit smaller because it's just a bigger base to start from. But there is sort of this noticeable increase in, in property crime that happens after a little while. Yeah, so talk more about that. I think you say in the paper it was about, at about the 12-month mark. Yeah, so the, on, on the property crime side, the interesting thing that we see is, and, and this was sort of odd and unexpected, I should say, right? Because like the, the Becker story goes the exact opposite direction, right? The, the, the Becker story is, or, or sort of, a, you know, maybe extended to Becker's story, it is, yeah, you, you provide people with some income, they don't need to commit crime anymore, and so you'd expect ex- especially property crime to go down, right? People don't need to steal anymore. And, and the type of thing that we're seeing here really is that type of crime, right? It's, it's larceny committed by female heads of household primarily. They're getting arrested in commercial establishments. I mean, it, it, it looks a lot like shoplifting, right? And so you know, why is shoplifting going up when you give people financial assistance? And, and as you said, it, it really, it doesn't, it kind of delays a little bit. And it sort of picks up at 12 months. And we, we puzzled over this for a long time. And the thing that helped sort of crack the nut on understanding what was going on there for us was splitting out who this was happening for by the type of assistance they were receiving. So most people are getting assistance from the HPCC for back rent. So they're behind on rent with their landlord, they're about to get evicted, and now we're going to pay a month of rent to your landlord so that they don't kick you out. Some people are instead getting security deposit assistance. Things are bad enough with their landlord that it's going to be hard to resolve that situation, so we're going to move you into a new place and pay for your security deposit instead. Well, what we see is, for the, particularly that group of people, the people who are getting security deposits, we see them 12 months later having this uptick in shoplifting. And can you nail down exactly what that is? No, but it, but it suggests a story, right? It suggests a story that, you know, most families, that's a good situation to have the security deposit paid for, but there's some group of families that are getting this new place set up for them. And 12 months later, they find themselves in the same situation. They're sort of over their head in terms of finances and, and shoplifting is a way to make up some income to be able to resolve that situation. Um, and so you have sort of maybe this little bit of an un- unintended consequence of um, getting financial assistance leading to somebody getting into a worse situation, which then leads to some increase in property crime later on. Now, I do, I, I do want to sort of emphasize the main original point, which is that that's like from a public cost-benefit point of view, that like it, if, if we can prevent one assault and at the same time cause one instance of shoplifting to happen, we want to make that trade-off. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's, I, I don't think that's a knock on, on the program itself, but it does tell us something interesting, I think, about how we run these programs and how we screen, that the, the sort of screening on is this a sustainable situation, particularly if you're paying for a new rental contract for somebody you don't want that rental contract to come up 12 months later and have this person be in this tough situation where, oh, I really have to pay that off so I can stay in my place and, and forcing them into a difficult situation that leads to shoplifting. Right. It suggests that even if the current program is cost-effective, you could imagine another version that's even more cost-effective if we can figure out how to solve that problem. Yeah. And so, like, the, I mean, I think the screening side and the targeting side of, like, who do you actually provide this assistance to the, the more you sort of think about these programs and this type of assistance, that, that question, not just of is it effective, but for whom is it effective and for whom is what type of it effective, right, is, is, is a really important part of, of, of really on, on designing these and making them as beneficial as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, so, the, so those results talk, uh, say a little bit about mechanisms. Uh, I know you, you talk more about that in the paper. So what, what else are you able to say about the mechanisms that are driving this overall effect? Yeah, so on the on the violent crime side, I think there's 
a couple different things that are that could be going on. So some first some things that we think that it's not, right? So one sort of like more complicated version of of a sort of rational criminal behavior, Beckerish type of story could be that you could be actually shifting people from violent to property crime if there's sort of like a index of like severity of crime where moving people from more severe to less severe crimes. That doesn't seem to be happening. It turns out that the groups of people are different. So all, all of the property crime increase is coming from families and all the violent crime decrease is coming from single individuals. So it's not sort of like, we're not just like shifting one from one to another. So that's not why violence is going down. It seems to us like there's a couple different things going on. One that we can sort of directly show and one that we hypothesize, but it's hard to sort of get direct evidence on. One, I think is, I do think housing is part of the story. We do see, for instance, the same group of people, singles, uh, having less arrests for homelessness-specific crimes. So things like trespassing. So people getting arrested for trespassing outside. That goes down too. And so you see some indications, and, and there's the other paper that, that Jim and others uh, wrote that, that demonstrated that this program does reduce entries into homeless shelters. And you see some sort of similar things if you look at just like address changes. So decreasing housing instability, preventing people from ending up on the streets or in shelters, or probably more likely for more people like doubled up with family and friends in really crowded housing situations. Like we see evidence that that's happening. And it's, it's not a far line to draw from that to decreases in violence, right? There's, there's a lot of qualitative evidence, Desmond's book and others, that right, if you put a bunch of people into a small space, that you just end up with more violence, um, right? You, either between people and their housemates or it spills into the neighborhood around or what have you. And so it's the idea that housing, and particularly crowded housing and unstable housing, it may lead directly to violence, I think is, is something that we, we can trace out and see evidence that the mechanisms for those are active in the data by, by seeing things like the, the arrests for, for trespassing. The, another thing that we think is probably going on, but is a little bit harder to test with the data that we have, is that some of this, like the, the sort of behavioral story of, uh, of Mo and Nathan and company, right, of, that this is just lowering people's level of stress and the emergency situation and allowing them to process the situation that they're in, right? We're talking about people who are in a crisis situation who were already low income, have lost their job and now have an eviction notice, right? Providing space in that context seems likely to me that that allows people to manage the process of, of avoiding violence better than, than if they don't have that income available. Now, that, that's one that we can't test. Um, but I, if, if I could test, I think I suspect is part of the mechanism of what's going on is, is, is just creating, creating that sort of space for people to be able to manage their very difficult situation better, uh, decreases violence. I wanted to highlight one other result because I'm particularly interested in prisoner reentry and was excited to see this paper in that context. As we're thinking about targeting and who might benefit the most from programs like this, I think you find that people who have at least one prior arrest benefit a lot. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, that's right. And so we we do see bigger effects for people who have some history with the criminal justice system, right? Because we see arrests for like the five years before the person calls. And so we can split up the sample into people who've had an arrest uh, in the past and people who haven't. Now it's even though we have a, a group of people who's more likely to have been arrested by the, the Chicago police than, than the average person, that's still a relatively uncommon thing. So we find evidence, yeah, that this makes a big difference for people with an arrest history. I do think it opens up a, an interesting next question, yeah, which, is, which we can't really answer in this paper, but I think is an important one for the future, which is yeah, what does financial assistance look like for people who have more severe contact with the criminal justice system? What about a population of folks who uh, you know, is, is sort of more typical group of folks who are, would be at high risk of violent crime, right? A, a group that might include a lot more men, right? That might include people with much more extensive histories with the criminal justice system. Now there's, there's other like challenges to doing financial assistance in that context for why it isn't as done, done as much, but this at least suggests that, you know, the benefits could be pretty big if you see the same sort of mechanisms there. So it's, we can't say a lot about it because other than in our sample, yeah, people with the, the longer histories do have a bigger reduction in, in future crime. But it's, I think it's, it's like this little tidbit that points to like, wow, it would be really good to know more about this. Yeah, I totally agree. So as you discuss in the paper, uh, you might worry that the people who receive assistance are simply easier to find because they're more likely to be living in stable housing or they weren't kicked out <laughs> when they got that eviction notice. So that could mechanically lead to more arrests, even if actual criminal behavior isn't changing. So the police are able to find you if they want to arrest you, basically. So how do you convince yourself that that isn't driving the effects that you see here? Yes, yeah, so we convinced ourselves on this and we, we, we tried to convince 
referees as well. I suppose we did what, at least well <laughs> enough to, to, to get it published. Um, and I, I'm interested what actually from like sort of a broad criminal justice research audience, how convincing people find this. Because I think we found it quite convincing, but I, I think there was, you know, there was a range of opinions on this. The way that we looked at it was one thing that you see in the Chicago arrest data is, is you did see warrants in, in our data, which are largely and actually this, through this project. Now, now I'm doing some more work on pretrial and failure to appear and this sort of stuff. This is a lot more familiar to me now, actually, than it was when we were writing this paper. But right, most of these warrants are, are for people not showing up at, at court, right? They don't, they don't show up. Failure to appear rates are quite high, or at least there's others on, on the show talking about FTAs. Right, it can be super high and and is a big issue in the criminal justice system. For our purposes, the fact that these are in the data can actually be a little bit helpful. Somebody who, right, so somebody calls in on a particular day, right, and they're calling the call center and they get the assistance or they don't. If they get arrested the next day on a bench warrant, that's almost certainly for a case that happened before the call. And so there's at least this initial window after the time of the call where arrests for bench warrants are really picking up just can the police find you. And they're not picking up new criminal behavior because you haven't had time for that to happen, really, but, you've had, but you have had time over that window for the police to try to find you on this, this existing bench warrant. And so what we do is we look at that a bit and we don't see any effect on, on arrests for bench warrants. And we take that as some evidence that this isn't just about them finding people more. Now that's, you know, the, you know there's, there's standard errors around that and there's, you know, so, so there's some uncertainty about that, but at least when, when we looked for it, in the way that we could, we didn't find any evidence of that. The other thing we, we were concerned about too, which is related, is that our data are, are limited to the city of Chicago, and you might be worried that when people have housing instability, that they that they move to another jurisdiction and out of the data set. And, and there, I think we were a little bit less concerned about that issue than the first one, because uh, migration rates out of Chicago are pretty low for, for this population. You're going to have a lot of migration within Cook County, but not a lot of people actually leaving the city among groups who are, you know, folks who are living on the south and west sides of Chicago. So this study was published in the Journal of Public Economics last year in 2019. Are there other studies that have come out recently that add to our understanding of the effects of financial assistance on crime? Sure. So I think there's a couple of different areas where we've seen progress. I mean, I think the well, starting with, right, I mentioned Jillian Carr and Annalisa Packham's paper before on, on, on cycles in food stamps disbursement and sort of spreading those out around the month and how that might affect crime, I think. So yeah, so there, I mean, their paper came out about the same time. So I think that's that's one thing that we sort of learned alongside each other. They have continued down the path and, and are continuing to produce really interesting papers about that particular topic. Their original paper was more on property crime, and now this more recent one is about domestic violence. And they and they actually find something that's more in the opposite direction. So that that I'm still puzzling over a little bit is is that they when Indiana and Illinois sort of smooth out this public benefit cycle, they're seeing increases in domestic violence, and, and their argument is that this is sort of like a within household resource allocation issue that that there you're actually that the the public benefit itself is a source of conflict in the household and that messing with that might lead to increases in domestic violence. And so we have uh, right we're finding something different in Chicago. And so I think reconciling those is is interesting. And so I don't know if it's right, the fact that that in, at the HPCC they're directly paying the landlord, maybe that makes a big difference. Maybe right the, the lesson here is to, you know, if if you're working with particularly a female heavy population of public benefit recipients who might have concerns about domestic violence that you want to pay it directly to the source rather than giving them agency over it, not because you don't want to give them agency, but precisely because you're worried about somebody else create, turning that into a violent situation as, as this conflict over the resources. I don't know. But it's, so that, I think their paper is really interesting and one that's, that's complicated my understanding of this a bit that I'm still wrestling with. Another set of papers that I think is related that's been interesting is there's a series of papers on fracking and and crime that it's right there, there's this there's this big literature on employment and the fracking literature so Brittany Street has a paper her job making paper from a couple of years ago um, Emily Owens and a co-author has, has has a paper on fracking and crime as well there there's like this combination of both the employment and the income effects happening for different groups of people in like the Dakotas and elsewhere where, where there's been increases in fracking and so I think it's sort of an interesting natural experiment to piece some of this apart and so I think that's another set of papers that have I've found to be quite interesting. I think we're actually going to see a lot more specifically. So no, none of those are specifically on emergency financial assistance, right? They're not on these type of like HPCC type programs. I think partially that's because a lot of the research on on these sort of programs, that are like the Homelessness Prevention Call Center, the research is in progress right now. I think I think in the coming years, both because of 
COVID, right? There's a like emergency financial assistance has exploded in the past couple of months all around the country because there's so many people experiencing these shocks right now. Um, and there's so many places that are lotterying off this, the assistance or doing it in other ways that lead to credible research designs. So I think we're going to see a bunch of papers on how emergency financial assistance matters in the COVID environment. And I think there were also just, you know, we at Leo and other, other folks who were also working on trying to bridge the next step of, of uh, doing emergency financial assistance and studying it in the context of something that's more explicitly a randomized controlled trial. But some, a lot of that stuff is so like sort of long-term that it's, it's a big lag. So I think there's a bunch in process right now. <laughs> that's great. I'm looking forward to seeing all those papers. Me too. <laughs> so uh, what are the policy implications here? What should policymakers and practitioners take away from this paper along with all the other studies you just mentioned? A couple of things. I mean, I think one, like the fact that we're talking a lot about emergency financial assistance during the, the COVID crisis, I think is right. Right. I think mm-hmm. that a lot of right, the, the federal government has done it a good bit and lots of local governments and local agencies have been trying to fill in the gaps on that. Even if targeting is bad on things like these, right? Even if only 2% of people are going to commit a violent crime in the absence of this thing or be arrested for it, or in, in only you know, a couple percent are going to end up in a homeless shelter, right? There's, if you're affecting these really costly outcomes for a small number of people, small percentage of people, it can still be, it can still pass a cost benefit test. And, and that's what shows up here. So I, I think emergency financial assistance in a broad way is something that that we're getting increasing evidence that it makes sense even when the targeting is hard to do. So I think that's one thing to learn. I think a second thing to learn about is is that like more broadly for social assistance, often we think about this as from sort of a like, what's the justification for these things? It's well, I'm sort of sitting behind this Rawlsian veil at the beginning of time and and, and we're making society and I don't know who I'm going to be. So we should, you know, I want some insurance against being in the worst situation. And so we should sort of build in this social insurance. But there's also an externality argument for this, right? I mean, there, there are situations where poverty and income volatility leads to outcomes that are bad for everyone, like crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, if we see changes in what things that are essentially public goods in response to some of this type of social assistance that gives a different type of argument for, for social assistance in general and helping people smooth these out because it doesn't just affect them, it also affects the people around them. I think the third thing, and I've been thinking about this a lot in the context of COVID, is that there's a lot of violent crime that, I mean, our paper suggests that a lot of violent, violent crime is the sort of result of just like poverty and stress spilling over out into the world. And that you can actually produce a decent amount of sort of like garden variety assaults and maybe not the most severe things like murders and such, but like sort of like the the bulk of like the most common violent crimes, a lot of that is coming from these these sort of day-to-day interactions, things related to housing and such. And so when you think about the current situation that we're in right now, where lots of people have had these shocks and particularly then people are also like sort of confined to being at home, which might be a good situation or might be a really bad situation for some people. Mm -hmm. I get really worried about, yeah, what's going to be happening in terms of domestic violence and so on in the current context and how can we respond in a way that, that mitigates some of those effects that we could try to get rid, you know, can we try to get rid of some of these potential violence, spikes in violence through things like financial assistance. So Emily Leslie and Riley Wilson have a yeah new working paper um, where they try to measure, quantify the effect of the lockdown on domestic violence you were just talking oh, yeah, about. Yeah. yeah, and they, they're finding that, um, so it turns out there are like strong seasonal trends in domestic violence calls. But once you control all of that for all of that, it does look like domestic violence calls have gone up during this period, which is what everyone was worried about. I think when people have been talking about that, they've really been focused on telling everyone they have to be home, even if home isn't very safe. And you're pointing to sort of a different mechanism there that it's really like the, the stress you know, that can be a problem too, but layering on the stress of losing your job and losing your income is a problem that we could find a way to solve, um, at least in this current moment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it may be the case that everybody has to be at home, but if everybody can be at home in a situation where they don't, they're not wondering how in the world we're going to pay the rent once the eviction moratorium goes away, right? That, that's, that's a less volatile environment than, than one in which I'm just... The only thing that we're doing is that I'm at home. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I'm a little bit less stressed. Exactly. So what's the research frontier? What are the next big questions in this area that you and others are going to be thinking about going forward? So uh, we've touched on a couple of these. I mean, I think some of them are, are the usual research design things. And so I think there is scope for, right, this is, this is not a random assignment study. There's, you know, if we, if we wanted to like talk for the next two hours about like potential things we could we'd poke at and the research design, we could do that, right? Because uh, mm-hmm. it's not perfect. 
And, and so actually doing a random assignment study of something like this, I think, is, is something that's needed. And, and there's external validity questions, right? Housing is very different and income volatility is very different in Chicago than it is in a lot of other places around the country. And so picking up additional pieces of evidence about this sort of more generally, I think, is, is important. And the current situation that we're in right now is, is different than you know, the, the environment that we were studying, which was happening you know, a couple of years after the Great Recession. Right? So that's both you know, unstable, for, but for very different reasons. So I, th- I think some of it's the usual sort of internal validity, external validity stuff. Beyond that, like sort of big questions... I, I do think this question of like, what would this look like for people with much more severe criminal histories is, is a really interesting one. It's a lot more challenging because the, like the r- risks of it going wrong and, and having you know, unintended negative adverse consequences uh, might be higher, right? If the evidence that we have that sometimes income sh- uh, positive income shocks are associated with uh, mortality risk due to drug use and so on, right? Like you might be worried about some of those a bit, a bit more, but you also might potentially have much bigger benefits, right? So I, I think that's one piece of, I, th- I think that's part of the frontier. And I think the other piece of the frontier is, is really the, the current COVID environment too, that emergency financial assistance is as important now as it's ever been because so many people are experiencing these shocks. That understanding how this stuff works right now is, is really important. My guest today has been David Phillips from the University of Notre Dame. David, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you so much. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers. This show is listener supported. So if you enjoy the podcast, then please consider contributing via Patreon. You can find a link in our website. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Elizabeth Pancotti. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.